Folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, July the 27th, 2021. This is episode 2921 of the Survival Podcast. Except that ain't right at all. It's 2922. Yesterday was 2921, so I got the the number wrong. I do have a subject right though today. We're going to have Brian and Laura Emerson back on the show. Had them on back in 2019 to talk about the way that they live in a very remote part of Alaska. I'm talking a place where a lot of their stuff has to come, well all their stuff either comes in on an airplane or a snow machine a couple months out of the year when things are iced over. It's a, it's a really unique way of life. And they approached me about coming back on. I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll have you guys back on. Y'all were fun last time. We're going to talk about bear hunting today. We're actually going to talk about some other things as well, some foraging, some beekeeping stuff, things like that. But uh, we're going to focus mainly on bear hunting and bear hunting for meat. And there's a lot of people, I think, that think, well, bear meat, like you only eat that if you're starving. No, you are wrong. Bear meat is outstanding. We'll tell you what it tastes like, tell you some things you can do with it, how to preserve it today and more. Talk about hunting, etc., uh, and some of the things that, that, that come with uh, dropping a large animal that takes some time to get processed in a place where larger animals uh, might come along and want to eat your animal or you. Yeah, because there's black bears that we're mainly going to talk about from a standpoint of hunting as meat animals today. And these great big brown bears that can be a thousand pounds or more and they, when they smell blood, they show up. So it's going to be an interesting show today. Before we dig into it, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is ButcherBox. You may not be able to just look outside your window and occasionally pop a black bear the way the Emersons can, but you can have fresh meat come right to your front door instead of your back door uh, once a month or once every other month. It's your choice. It can be a lot or it can be a little less or a whole bunch. It's up to you how much you want. You have almost unlimited customization with a standard box, a large box, uh, add-ons that are recurring, add-ons that are just for the month. You can even pause your box for a month, uh, switch to every other month, what have you. So, I mean, there's really no reason not to be a butcher box customer. If you want some of the best grass-fed beef, pastured pork, and pastured poultry shipped right to your home, uh, like I said, it can be every month or every other month. It's up to you. And I am, I've just been so happy that I have these guys as uh, sponsors. Been with us a little over three years now. Uh, have always taken care of this audience, and it is just a great way to worry a little bit less about the food that you need to go out and acquire every month. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. Been, been a reader of Backwoods Home Magazine since 93, when I discovered them after I got out of the Army at Barnes & Noble bookstores, back when people went to bookstores. That's how long I've been reading Backwoods Home and became a subscriber in 1994 when I got my first decent-paying job after I got out of the Army. So 1994, uh, that's over 20, it's 27 years or something, 26 years, something like that, I've been a subscriber. I mean, guys, that, that should be all I have to say. Check out BackwoodsHome.com and see why I've been a, a loyal reader and subscriber to their publication for so long. All right. With that, before I bring uh, Laura and Brian on, let's go ahead and have our quote of the day. 
Since we're talking about bears and hunting, I thought I would talk about my favorite bear today. The grizzly bear, the polar bear, or the brown bear. Nope, none of them. Fred Bear. Fred Bear said one time, very famously, probably the most famous words that have ever been recorded that this man said, if some of our teenage thrill seekers really want to go out and get a thrill, let them go up to the northwest and tangle with the grizzly bear, the polar bear, and the brown bear. They will get their kicks, and it will cleanse their soul. Uh, Fred Bear was an amazing man. For those that don't know, he's the founder of Bear Archery. He harvested every big game animal there is to harvest in North America with a bow and arrow, most with a simple longbow. And you'll hear me uh, mention to Brian and Laura today once I get them on that when I was a kid, there was a hardware store. And I don't know the story of how this bear ever ended up in that window. But it was one of the Kodiaks that Fred Bear had shot with a bow. And um, it was huge. I mean, taller than the back of a basketball board is what it seemed like. Of course, I was a little kid back when it was there. But this this bear, which and it, it was mounted a full mount standing up with its paws up and its head up and like it was ready to come down and eat you. And I, I was always blown away by by that animal. And when I learned about Fred Bear, I was more impressed with the man than any of the animals that he took. He was a truly unique individual. And if you've never looked into who and what Fred Bear is and what he was all about, because he's passed away quite a while now, uh, it's worth doing. And it won't be our song of the day today, but I'd be remiss here if I didn't mention... You know, Ted Nugent wrote a song called the Fred Bear Song, and I have played it on the air before. And it's because they were friends, and you know, before Fred passed away. And uh, he's just a guy that's had. If you've ever bow hunted, even if you never knew his name, I guarantee you, there's no, there's nobody that's participated in archery in in North America that hasn't been in some way touched by the work that Fred Bear did. He was just an amazing guy, and. I agree. Uh, when it comes to hunting in these wild places, cleansing the soul is a good way to put it. With that, let's go ahead and uh, bring on our special guests today. Again, uh, Brian and Laura Emerson. And with that, hey guys, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. Great being with you again. Uh, we just so appreciate all the hard work you're doing. Thanks, Jack. Glad to have you guys on. Last time I had you guys on was March of 2019, and we talked a little bit about your location and the logistics behind it, because you guys are in uh, a fly-in only uh, or machine snow machine-in only location in the wilds of Alaska. Let's not rehash all that, but just give people a little background about kind of your living conditions, where you live, so they get where we're coming from today when we talk about hunting bears. We live on five acres in uh, Alaska, surrounded by state land. The population within about 10 miles is four full-time people. Uh, our closest little rural hamlet of 2,000 people is a 20-minute flight away in our little PA-20, Piper. And the big city in Alaska, which is Anchorage, a grand total of 270,000, is a 35-minute flight away. So any food that we bring in costs 30 cents a pound to bring in by snow machine or 50 cents a pound to bring in by plane. 
So there's a cost-benefit analysis for our to grow, <clears throat> hunt, and uh, fish for any food we can get right here. And that's probably aggravated by the fact that food in Alaska is just generally more expensive anyway, isn't it, than like probably Dallas or Fort Worth where I live? Exactly. Uh, yeah, you know, we're at the tail end of the supply chain, so everything uh, that gets up here is going to be more expensive and probably inferior quality. Yep. Yeah, I would imagine. So um, just for people to, again, kind of get an understanding of who they're hearing from today, what made y'all end up living where you do in the first place? Were you born in Alaska? Did you run away to Alaska? How'd that work out? Well, my answer is that it was my husband's midlife crisis, which uh. <laughs> I still maintain is true. But what he what he says, and it's a good story, is that growing up in suburban Chicago, his parents had a 129, I think, acre tree farm in central Wisconsin where he spent formative, very happy years with his dad and mom hunting and fishing, living in a log cabin, uh, working with the Department of Natural Resources to develop up the land for their purposes. So he had some experience with this. I, however, married him wearing lipstick, high heels, living in a high rise. So I was an absolute novice. How the hell did he get you to move to the middle of nowhere, Alaska, when you were a, a true girly girl? I adore the guy. Okay. <laughs> You're a lucky man, Brian. Anyway, we're going to talk about bear hunting today. And uh, I think usually when people hear that, they, they generally think about it being uh, kind of a something you do as like a trophy hunt or something like that. But we're coming at it from a standpoint of hunting for meat and then what we do with that meat after we get it. Um, can you start out with, I mean, when people think of Alaska, you think of Alaskan brown bears. My quote of the day today was from Fred Bear, the uh, world-famous archer. Uh, who had a Kodiak in a, a Kodiak mounted bear in a, uh, the window of a small hardware store in, in Nowheresville, Pennsylvania, where I grew up. And I always would, you know, go by in my dad's car and see that bear and just think, wow. Um, so there is, uh, there is something to that. And a lot of times because of things like that, when people think Alaska and bear, they think brown bear. But when it comes to meat, are we really looking at, at the, you know, the giant brown bear or are we more in the realm of the black bear? So, Jack, Alaska has, um, according to state statistics, about 30,000 brown or grizzly bears and about 100,000 black bears. The average black bear size is 350 pounds, and that dresses out to 210, leaving you about 120 of meat. So uh, it's, uh, it's smaller, quite a bit smaller than the average uh, brown bear. We don't live on a salmon stream, which tend to uh, uh, focus the, the brown or grizzly bears we're on a lake uh, that has, uh, you know, limited fish. So we tend to get more wandering black bears through the area looking for berries uh, or things to chew on. And uh, so so we see them in our yard, uh, bear and, and moose, fairly often. So um, in our case, probably a couple times a year, we would see a, a decent-sized black bear come in our backyard. And quite frankly, for the first day, you know, we, we let them sniff around and do their thing. They're generally very cautious. They are solitary, generally don't want to be around people. We don't, uh, other than our chickens and ducks, we don't have a dog outside to scare them away. So they're curious. 
And if they keep moving, you know, we're happy. Most of them have about a 50-mile radius that they walk around uh, over the course of a summer. Of course, they're hibernated in the winter. But it's the second day that they get a little more emboldened and they start uh, destroying things. And that's when they become a volunteer for the freezer. Okay, so y'all are more of an opportunist-type hunter here in this situation than, than going out and tracking through the woods uh, for a bear. Absolutely, and just think how much time that saves. We've got a lot of things we have to do here on our own. I don't want Brian wandering off into the woods sitting there for three days. He's got wood to chop. <laughs> so we, everybody living on a homestead knows how much work they are. So in our case... Um, You know, getting one bear or so a year is real, really greatly helps our meat situation, uh, without having to spend the time to, again, take a week or so to, to be out in the woods and, uh, and, and find something that, look for something that might not be there. And what's your, your limit? I mean, there's two of you, so that immediately would tell me you can take two animals. Is that it? Is it, uh, you know, so I, I know in some provinces in Canada, a single hunter can take two bears. Is there, uh, You know, how does that work out for you guys in Alaska? Sure. In Alaska, uh, the uh, in-state residents can take up to three black bears a year uh, mm. without requesting a nuisance permit, basically. And, uh, you know, we usually do one, but we can get up to three. And, and, of course, most of the year they're hibernated anyway, so summer's the big time to be on the lookout for them. So I have eaten black bear, and I think it is one of the – most amazing meats that you can get your hands on. Um, I know you got, you guys personally hunt black bear. I've never had uh, grizzly. Um, living up there, perhaps you have. Is there much of a difference in the, the flavor, the consistency of the meat from one to the other? In old-time cookbooks and references, I have read that people ate brown or grizzly bear too, but we personally know nobody who mm -hmm. eats brown bear Primarily because of what Brian said, they own the salmon and fish streams, so they smell fishy. They taste fishy. The black bears are out here eating berries and uh, an occasional chicken, you know, so yeah. they taste better. I agree with you that they're tasty. Uh, one rule of thumb I heard that, that I use is you spice them like beef, but you cook them like pork. And, of course, the shape of a bear is such that Brian butchers it like a hog. Mm -hmm. Um I find that the, the back strap is the very uh, most tender cut of meat. It tastes like a beef fillet, but it's long and shaped like a flank steak. The rest of the bear, you know, I, I, I smoke like hams or the, the shank meat. I cook just like osobuco. Um, it, is, it is very tasty and versatile, I think. Yeah, I mean, what I remember from the few times we've we had bear, because, like, we, we don't – I grew up in Pennsylvania – Uh, and, and we didn't get to shoot three bears a year. You were lucky to shoot one in your lifetime. It was kind of a bucket list item. You know, you're talking about a, a state that has more than a million people hunting on the first day of deer season. And back yeah. then ha had an annual average harvest of about 2,000 bears. So it's a, it's a different world for, for me than, you know, having three a year without a nuisance permit. I can't even get my head around that. But it is a fairly lean meat. So even though they might have a lot of fat on them, they're a lot like a deer where they're more of a floating fat on the outside of the muscle rather than a marbled fat. 
And I think that does lend well when you say cook like pork to slow cooking a lot of the larger cuts. And to me, it was like the richest, deepest pot roast. And you mentioned cook like Osobuco. Just one, like, like the best piece of pot roast you could ever get your hand on when you're cooking those thicker, more tough cuts. Right. Uh, and now, of course, the scraps we do put into our meat grinder, uh, add some fat, and get burgers, and they're really mm. delicious. Now, they tend to fall apart uh, faster than uh, beef, but really, really good. This bear uh, measured five foot six inches nose to tail and didn't have any fat on them at all because it's really? pretty early in the year. I got this one a couple weeks ago. Uh, the last one I got, which was six foot four inches, uh, was more towards the fall and just had pounds and pounds of fat, which we used for quite a long time. Yeah, I rendered the the bear fat down to lard, and it's a very um, uh, it's it's whiter than butter, and, but but yellower than milk, and it was a very fine neutral flavor, and it was fantastic when I made biscuits and tortillas. And I guess you probably have a big difference between early and late season. I mean, I'm not even sure how you, because Alaska is a different world. I mean, like, I've been bear hunting, like, up in in, in Canada, in for quite a bit further south than you guys are, and they have a spring bear season and a fall bear season is how they'll call that. Um, is there much of a, is, is that the biggest difference is fat content, or is there a, beyond the fat, is there a flavor difference in, in early season or late season bear? Well, uh, a couple things. Number one, the big uh, important issue about a spring bear hunt is that they are lean, um, which means they've gotten any kind of toxins or bad flavors out of their body during hibernation. But number two, the pelts are very thick. They have that winter fur on them, which, you know, uh, starting a few weeks into uh, what we call a, a breakup of the ice, they're trying to rub that off. So by this mm. time of the year, you're not getting a very high-quality uh, pelt. Uh, now, in the fall, of course, you would be able to get much more fat, which could help you get through the winter in a place like this. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, some of them have picked up a dead fish here or there or other kinds of uh, dead animals since they're scavengers. So they might not taste as, as good at the end of the year as in the beginning. Okay. What is your uh, your choice of uh, weaponry? I mean, if we're talking Kodiaks or something, you know, I'm I'm not even thinking about it with anything under a 338 because it probably wants me dead. Uh, black bear, are, especially in the size range you're talking, I mean, it, it, it seems like just about any decent center fire deer cartridge would be adequate. Right. I use a 338 uh, exclusively on bear, and it, okay. it brings them down pretty much the first shot. Um, you know, I do know people that uh, hunt uh, with a uh, .30-06. I don't know, you know, the results. I, I've seen people also take them down with a .45-70. Uh, I think that's kind of overkill, but the three thirty eight is great. The longest shot I would ever make is about 150 feet because there's just so much dense vegetation around mm -hmm. here. There are no long shots. So you're not really worried about, uh, you know, ballistics drop. I've shot several with those sixes, and it's it's more than enough gun. I I guess it all is dependent. There's some there's some big black bears too, but when you're talking to 300 pound animal, like 
the 06 has pretty much taken every animal in the North American continent. But again, if we're, if we're talking thousand pound, angry, pissed off, wants to eat me, I'm probably going to upgrade from there. But with blackies, I think you're finding that, you know, anything in there. Though, uh, I'm with you on a 338. That's probably why it was the first thing come out of my mouth was it's a hell of a cartridge. <laughs> Right. And, you know, one of the strategies is to try to hit them in the front shoulder, because that way, A, if you break those thick bones, they're not going anywhere. And B, if you, you know, break it and it keeps on going, uh, then that's probably a kill shot. Yeah. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges there, because like one of the challenges with bear, especially, I guess, again, for you, late season bear from, from where I've been, mostly it's all the option there is. They do end up with so much much fat on them. If you do put a round into them, even if it's lethal, and they get off into the into the woods, they can be a, a bit more difficult to track from the standpoint of a blood trail, especially if you don't have a through and through, because that fat will kind of like gum back up, and they just and they have so much hair as well. Unless they're pulsing blood, they they don't leave the kind of trail that maybe a deer would. Right, and of course, the big problem for us are the brown and grizzly bears in the area because we're not the top of the food chain. And so <laughs> the last thing I want is a wounded bear going through the woods, uh, you know, getting granddad grizzly uh, looking for a meal. Now, it's interesting that after ah. I butchered this, and I did and I did that by throwing the my uh, ATV winch over a limb and hauling him up, I had a, an angle iron with meat hooks on each of the back legs so I could raise and lower as I was uh, butchering down from the uh, back back uh, feet to the head. But at any rate, uh, we had a game camera on the situation, and within 48 hours, a big brown bear was smelling blood and looking around. Obviously, we'd, we'd long gotten rid of the carcass by that point, but, you know, they're, 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 you know, they're, they're bigger, bigger animals out there looking for that, that blood and uh, have a great sense of smell. Well, I didn't... Uh... I didn't really think of that because you had mentioned that you don't have a, a lot of brown bears. I guess that doesn't mean not any uh, in your area. Because, um, like, I I went on one hunt in Canada where uh, I was a bow hunt. And, yeah, I, I don't know that I'd want to be following a blood trail of a 300-pound bear at the same time that maybe a 900-pound bear is following the same blood, blood trail. I really... You know, being where I'm from, I didn't ever really think of it that way. We always see brown bears or their tracks when we hike two miles through the woods to a creek to go fishing. And their their huge paw prints with the long uh, talons are really, really noticeable, those long claws. This year we've seen three brown bears on our property, but last year we didn't see a single brown or black bear. So, you know, it depends upon snow level and what other food is available to them elsewhere, I guess. You know, you gave us some, like, flight times and stuff to places where things are. But how how far, like, as the crow flies, are you from what people would think of as civilization, just in miles? Well, 20 miles as the plane flies. Okay. To to a, a little hamlet of 2,000 people that has a gas station, a liquor store, and a hardware store. That's it. And, and just trying to get it, because Alaska's a huge state. It's like two and a half Texases or something like that. Like, kind of where are you from, like, I, I kind of know where Anchorage is down on the coast. Are you 
Well, to the interior, I mean, would you still call it southern Alaska? I mean, I don't even know the regions there. We're due north of Anchorage, okay. 35 uh, miles, 30, about a 35, 40-minute flight north. This, this area, which includes Anchorage and the Kenai Peninsula, and where we all is all referred to as South Central, um, okay. we think of Juneau and Southeast Alaska really as Northern Seattle. Okay. okay. <laughs> Shots fired at the people from uh, Juneau. Okay. Um, what about butchering with bear? Can you talk a little bit about how that might be different than people that are very familiar with, like, say, butchering a white-tailed deer? Sure. And, uh, you know, I took quite a few white-tailed bucks uh, when I was in high school in Wisconsin, so I have a little bit of comparison there, although I will say, I'm no, I'm no super butcher, so this is, uh, you know, some thoughts from a very novice butcher. But basically, uh, you would butcher it like you would a hog, and you can clearly see the delineation once you have the fur off of the different, you know, basically cuts of meat, and you can follow that, um, those lines to give you, you know, the cuts you want. Um, I, I would refer most people to a hog butchering chart. Uh, and that's what I looked at when I did my cuts. And uh, in that sense, they were very similar. And it took, oh, by the way, it took me about probably four or five hours to do all the butchering. I shot them at midnight. Again, you remember, there's a lot of daylight up here. And at mm -hmm. midnight, you could still read a book outside this time of year, or at least a couple weeks ago when I was doing it. So I shot them at midnight, and our decision was, we've got a lot of work ahead of us. We're a little tired. Let's make sure he's bled out. Let's go to sleep and get up early and hit it. So I got up at five. Um, I started preparing things, got the ATV, got the winch. Uh, we have several buckets of water with vinegar in them so that I would cut off the meat. And then Laura would take the buckets with water and vinegar inside and uh, start, you know, uh, cutting from there and preparing and packaging. Um, so, again, it was about a five-hour process then At the end, we would take what's the remains of the carcass after we've got all the meat, and we would put it in our kayak, take it across the lake, which is about a mile long, leave it in a bog, and all every time we do this, within about 48 hours, something much bigger has dragged off the carcass <laughs> and gone. So it doesn't take long for that thing to be picked clean, but we just don't want to happen, you know, in our house. Yeah, get it away from there. I, I, I'd say that my experience with this is hitting right on what you said. It's time. It takes longer. It's more work. I can, I can skin a deer in 10 minutes tops. I can quarter a deer in another 10. Uh, it, it takes a lot more time to break down a bear. It's, 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 it's not just bigger. It kind of, it's kind of the, it's the same, but different man is what I always say. Like the basic, major quartering and all is the same it just seems like it takes more work and when you have one because i've never skinned a bear that wasn't really covered in a lot of fat when you have a lot of fat it's a little bit more work on, on skinning as well it's been my experience right and another uh, factor about alaska is that the state requires that the skin be sealed which means you have to leave proof of sex on the skin, on the fur, on the hide, and bring it into a game station with the skull within 30 days. And then they, of course, put a tag through it and take measurements and all that. 
But, you know, that's an extra factor because now we've got to put all of these extra parts in a big cooler and then i got to fly them to town and, <laughs> you know, then dispose of it. So it's, it's a lot of work. Do they, do they pull a tooth out of it? That's what they always did, Pennsylvania Tech Station. They pull a tooth out because it gives the age on the bear. Yes, okay. yes, they did, and they took the skull measurements. They they felt ours was about a four-year-old male. Um, so, yeah, that was part of the process. Uh, you kind of mentioned already, um, you do, Laura, you do a lot of smoking and all, but what is your main preservation methods here? You know, you can smoke, freeze, cook, all of it. Uh, mostly canning. Now, on the first couple of days when Brian is, is working, we're trying to process the meat as fast as we can. Then that's when I have a bigger smoker, and I'm also cutting things up and putting them in the freezer just kind of as a holding mechanism. Okay. I have two pressure pressure cookers, which is when I cook them kind of like anybody would cook a brisket. You were talking about that before. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I can, I have a large pressure canner, but I can only process seven I think seven quarts at a time. Okay. And to do meat takes about, I don't know, 75 or 90 minutes for that. And then there's the cool down time. So it takes me several days to process that. One thing I've started doing, of course, is using, is making broth too. Mm. So this year, I think I got 10, 10 and a half quarts of bear broth that we'll be able to use through the winter with rice or whatever we want to do and lots of meat. I think some of my favorite recipes are uh, mushu bear. I love that kind of Chinesey <laughs> caramelized approach. And uh, I do a lot of, you know, we had bear tacos this week, um, bear spaghetti. The bear burgers have turned out really well since the meat is lean. We, we mix that with some bear lard or pork lard. Plus, I'll put cheese and onions in there to flavor it and moisten it, too. But uh, it's a versatile and tasty dish. So what what would you say it, it most tastes like? We kind of hit on that already, but, I mean, I've always said, like I said, it's a very rich beef flavor to me. Yes, I'd agree. I'd agree. I would say in texture and flavor, it would be like a good brisket. Although i got to say, whenever my mom made brisket, it always was kind of dry and tasteless. And I think my bear is uh, more flavorful. Sorry, Mom. <laughs> well, see, it already sounds like y'all ruined brisket anyway, because that's not how you... We're in Texas. A brisket involves slow and slow and smoke. And if when you cut it open, if it ain't moist, you did it wrong. And if it ain't got a smoke ring on it, you did it wrong. As the Yankees cooking briskets like pot roast. And I know I grew up in Pennsylvania, but I got down here as quick as I could. <laughs> I, I will say one other thing. I think... The bear burgers and the other meat that we make from bear, it, it, I don't know how to put this nicely, but sometimes a rich, beefy meal ends up as a gut buster. It's just okay. sitting in my gut. Tongue. Bear doesn't do that. So whatever no. the content is of the meat, whatever, it's easier to digest, I believe. I bet it's more what they're eating than anything else. Like, Because if you're eating beef, you know, unless you know you're getting grass-fed, um, who knows what the hell's been shoved into them? I, I've I've known ranchers that literally feed like stale candy bars to cows. Um, oh. You're talking about a bear that's living on you know some some carrion and stuff like that. But it, they eat a ton of uh, uh, berries and stuff like you mentioned. And I don't really know the the tree types in your area, but like in in PA they they are they heavily heavily feed on acorn mast. 
So if you think about like the most expensive pork in the world you can buy is acorn finished uh, pork out of Spain. Uh, you're kind of a wild animal living that same life. I don't know what kind of nut mass y'all have, but I, I know they just absolutely envelop that stuff uh, in other places. Oh, that's interesting. We don't know that we have any. We don't have any nuts here that that people would recognize. But we do have. This is berry country because we live in a spruce and birch forest, so there it's acidic soil. So mm. we have elderberries, cranberries, currants, raspberries. I mean, this is this is a wonderful place for berries for beer for bears and people. Hmm. And another thing too, Jack, to consider is. I know a lot of people are probably have this uh, vision of an urban bear, you know, going to the dump. There's no dump around here. I mean, sure, you know, <laughs> the few people out here, we've got a burn barrel, but there's really no junk or plastic for them to eat. You know, now I did mention earlier that they could be a little destructive. So this guy uh, tore out the screen in our outhouse. Uh, he found a lot of our garden hoses and put teeth marks in them because they like that rubbery feel, I guess, in their mouth. Um he ate up uh, one of our uh, big, heavy plastic trash cans. So, you know, you have to be careful about leaving stuff out because they're curious and they want to, you know, eat what they can. They're hungry. And uh, so they, whereas they can't really eat any of the stuff, they do put holes in a lot of our, in our things. And that, uh, again, just is another reason that they become volunteers. They're like 350-pound like toddlers. They just put everything in their mouth to check it out. Yeah, they're like 350-pound pit bulls, man. Uh, <laughs> that one sounds like he earned his trip to the freezer. Like, it was well-earned. <laughs> yeah. We we gave him a day to move through, and uh, he chose to stay. So, I mean, you're mentioning these berries. I imagine you guys harvest a lot of that stuff for yourselves as well. Oh, we absolutely do. I use the elder flowers when I've made wine with birch sap. Um, uh, we harvest the raspberries. Now, I did plant domestic raspberries, which I favor now because the, the berries are larger, they're you know uh, and, and juicier than the than the wild ones. But uh, we we live on a lot of berries. Last year, I harvested six gallons of raspberries alone. Plus, we have a lot of northern berries that Canadians and maybe Minnesotans would know, like Haskups and uh, Saskatoon berries. And also the the currants, strawberries. It's great. No no scurvy here. <laughs> so I mean, I, I imagine like we're talking about bear, but there's probably a fairly holistic uh, component to this. We mentioned deer earlier. Do y'all harvest any venison? Are there other plants that you guys either grow or harvest? Sure. Um, well, there's no uh, deer in this part of Alaska. There's some down south. But um, I do manage to uh, uh, work uh, somewhere between two and seven beehives every year behind an electric fence. We only had one bear break into that over the years, and he tore up a bunch of hives. But since bees here that produce honey generally don't overwinter, there's no history of bears going after honey, so they pretty much leave it alone. Uh, we do have a dozen chickens, some ducks. Uh, you know, we've had rabbits over the years, a bunch of raised bed gardens, and luckily no wild animals have gotten into our raised bed gardens, so we're happy for that. And we do uh, use most of our own natural supplies when I brew beer or, or Laura, uh, you know, uh, ferments her wine. 
So hold on on the bees then. You mentioned they they don't overwinter. Does that mean that they just don't live wild? And they can if you if you're working hives. I guess what I'm getting at is how are you getting your bees through that winter? Or is it just it's it's am I misunderstanding? No, the mortality rate of bees uh, with me has been about seventy five percent each year. But uh, if people who are on the road system uh, oftentimes go together and put their beehives in a connex that has, you know, a light bulb on or something in the winter to keep it more controlled and dark. Uh, maybe they're up to 50%. But pretty much every year we get a resupply of new hives from California. Uh, right. One day a year, you know, a, uh, a plane arrives with a whole bunch of hives and a lot of, a lot of mean bees, and we all go retrieve our hives and move them out to our places. In my case, I have to fly them out, so they get another flight. And, uh, you know, we harvest it. We've got an extractor, and uh, it's just super fresh because, you know, there's no real pollutants out here for the bees to get, get into. Small aircraft sealed up with five bee nukes in it. <laughs> yeah, that sounds fun. <laughs> Actually, I though, I'm... Go, go ahead. I bought life insurance on my husband, and I don't go on that flight. I, that just seems like a comedy film waiting to happen. A guy with a bunch of bees buzzing around in an airplane. It seems like a, a reboot of Indiana Jones and the Snakes or something. But uh, I, I was going to say, in, in seriousness, you probably do get a huge uh, yield off of them, though, because they have so long that they can work and so much to work for the time that they can Exactly. Yeah. Now it is a short season, um, but uh, it's a great yield and great tasting, and, and we use that in our diet instead of uh, refined sugar. Certainly, certainly. The beer that Brian makes is a Chimay style, mm. and he makes it with honey instead of sugar. And a beer that's made with honey is actually called a Brago. B R A G G O T. That's what got me into making beer back when I, I make mostly meats now, so obviously I'm using honey. But it was Chimay that got me into it, and the best Trappist-style ale I've ever made had a, just a ton of honey in it. And it is, uh, I know the monks spent like 300 years cultivating their own yeast and figuring out how to make that stuff, but I think they're missing something. I, 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 I made one that was just ridiculous one time. I used... I think it was going to be like nine pounds of malt extract. And then I ended up like doing like two levels of fermentation. And I let it basically get to the point where it was almost finished. And then I dumped five freaking pounds of, of raw honey straight into it. And it took off again. And it had to age about a year and a half to really peak. But uh, I ended up calling it uh, pollinator, uh, pollinator Triple conversion ale because it made people into brewers you'd give them a little i put it in the little bottles and uh you give somebody a little bottle that are like where can i get something like this like you got to make it dude you can't you can't buy that (laughs) good for you good for you well here's a little tidbit in relation to that the the bees that we prefer up here are a, a species called buckfast which i understand were cultivated by some monks in europe eons ago so maybe they were doing it for their beer i don't know i wonder if y'all will ever get to the point where your bees are more sustainable like the ones that do make it like if you said you i think you said you lose like 75 percent, 25 percent make it 
like it would seem that over time you, they may adapt a little more. I guess it's been going on a while, so maybe not. But um, anyway, we're, we're drifting well, into I, B territory. But <laughs> I think I, I, that's okay. Well, I think part of the issue is uh, a queen is only productive, at least a peer, I understand, for about three years. And then, of course, if the hive's going to uh, generate a new mm. queen or queens, then they have to go on their mating flight. And the problem is there's no other colonies up here to mate with her. You know, to find yeah. a, a drone, there are no drones in the wild, so it would be one of my other hives at best. So I think the odds are against them. But, look, if I could get a hive uh, to last an additional year, that's one less flight I have to make and, you know, keeps the cost down, and uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and it's the thing that works for you here would work against you there in that if I get a hive and they turn into psycho bitch bees and try to kill me every time I work the hive, I can squish a queen and requeen the hive and put them in six weeks, they're back to all placid and, you know, happy little bees that can be pet or whatever. Where that works against you is you're losing your... that You, you, you squish a queen or you lose a queen and you requeen, you've lost your genetics. I put Michael Jordan on developing right. Alaskan bees, man, because that would be a thing, you know, if you ah. could figure out how to do it. Well, and we hear more and more, uh, uh, you know, apiaries in, in the northern states of the U.S. and in Canada are trying to crack that cold weather code. So, you know, that's right. Maybe it'll be another species someday. We have our fingers crossed on that. Yeah. I mean, do, what is your native pollinator? Uh, do you have any idea even like what what is because if you have things like berries and stuff you have something that's being pollinated to, to, to get a yield from it's not a wind pollination thing is there something that serves fills that niche up there that maybe is not useful for honey but is what what is it we do have several types of bumblebees okay. coverflies um, you know a lots of mosquitoes up here in June so there are a number of other pollinators but uh I do like seeing the honey, uh, the honeybees, and they are gentle. We've never ever been stung by a honeybee. Well, see, that's the thing that works against you, working for you, working against you, right? So that what happens here, you you never start with angry mean bees. You they, they breed with the the wild bees, and, and then you get the, the oh, okay. wild genetics in the hive. So that never happens to y'all up there because you don't have any. But that's what happens here. We'll get you know. I would say most. Wild bees in Texas have at least some of the Africanized genes in them. So as soon as you get a swarm and a flight and whatever, you get uh, you get those genetics into your hive, and they they can be. I've never seen them like super bad, but we needed to move my hives and requeen them one time, and so you know the whole two feet or two miles thing. So what happened right. is my bee mentor took the hives to his location, requeened them, and then brought them back. Because if we had moved them from one side to the other, that could have caused all kinds of problems. And when we did that, we went out almost at dark. We stapled hardware cloth over all the holes. Some of the bees got out. And they were bad enough that after we had moved the hives to the back of his vehicle and we're having a beer, some of the ones that got out were still attacking us a good 200, wow. yards, 200 yards from where the hive was. I mean, they were, that was as hot of, as I've ever seen them. And it it's a pretty regular occurrence, and y'all don't have to deal with that. That's great. 
Well, compared to your story, I think we have the Stepford wives of bees. Yeah. Well, that's because you get, like I said, you get the genetics you get, and then you have those genetics. That's it. You're not going to have any, any crossing. So just real quick before we wrap up, is there any other uh, you know, food resources you guys are relying on in conjunction with meat that you gain? Like, Do you want to talk about quick here, like fishing or other uh, things that you're gathering or foraging for? Good question. Um, there's some good news and some bad news here. One is, in terms of fishing, and I would mention this to anybody who thinks, oh, I'm going to bug out and move to a lake or whatever. Our lake used to have uh, trout before we moved in, but by the time we moved in, it had been cultivated or, or uh, the, the new residents were pike. And these were big, bad, fighting fish. We pulled them out. They were 39 to 42 inches long, lots of good white meat uh, fishing there. But they've cannibalized each other now to such an extent that they're hardly worth fishing. Mm. So I'm not saying we're living on a barren lake, but anybody that was looking at a property and said, oh, I'll be able to have lots of fish protein, better check that out. Uh, I have learned a great deal about foraging. I forage for about... Uh, 15 to 18 plants here that I use for uh, home remedies as well as food. The recent batch of beer, for example, that Brian made, he made with sweet gale that grows along our lake shore. And I found that the medieval name for that as a flavoring instead of hops is a gruit, G-R-U-I-T. Um, let's see, what else do I harvest? Uh, cleavers or bed straw kind of tastes like uh, vanilla. I put that in teas. I've harvested a bunch of red clover, which is a blood tonic and, and tastes like honey in teas. Um, uh, I harvest all of our berry leaves for various teas in the winter. Um, so we get a lot of calories from what, uh, what, what grows here naturally. My very favorite is called lamb's quarter which grows throughout the U.S., particularly in nitrogen-rich areas like a compost pile or a garden. And we love that. We eat that all the time, both raw and in dips and cooked like a spinach. i, I got to say, lamb's quarters is one of my favorites as well. Young lab, lamb's quarters. When it gets older, it gets a little tough, I guess, or mealy. True. But what I've learned is it, it grows back real fast. So if you like, yes. when it gets big, if you lob it off, you know, a couple feet from the ground, all those little shoots it sends up, it's like it reboots it, and those young shoots are like starting over. But help me out here, cleavers taste like vanilla? Because I have yep. cleavers all over the damn place. I didn't, you know, I know they're a medicinal, but I didn't know that they were. I mean, they just they feel weird. That's all I really knew about them. So they're good for making tea. They do have that weird sort of sticky, prickly texture. I know what you're meaning. But the ones that I get, I pull under when they're when they're small, and uh, you dry them, and they do have a, a, a nice flavor. I would give, you know, give it a give it a try. Just plop some in some iced tea. Yeah, I'm gonna have to try that. I'll have to wait till next year. By the time we get to our 120 degree days, they're they're gone. They they're a spring plant here. They right. don't. They do not. They do not like Texas. Nothing likes Texas summer. This year's weird. We've gotten this weird stuff called rain this summer, and nah. every everything's still green, but it's we've hit the peak now, and it is starting to brown up. But I'll give cleavers a try. That that's a cool thing. I had no idea that they had a good flavor to them. They just don't seem like something that would. But that's cool. There you go. 
So, um, can you tell me, like, is my you know my environmentalist brain is peaked here now? I can absolutely see how Pike in the wrong ecosystem could wreck that ecosystem. How'd they get in there? Did some dumbass bring them in, or what? Well, pike are native to Alaska north of the Brooks Range, so the extreme north of the state. But down here, they're not. They're, you know, The tale that we hear is that somebody from Minnesota in the late 1950s brought a bunch in because he wanted his grandkids to fish for pike in their lake, and then at some point the waters rose, And since this is all basically a glacial drainage, you know, yeah. valley, that they all spread to all the lakes and they took out all the trout. So that's kind of the short story, which has, you know, been a real problem. Yeah, blame the Minnesotans. <laughs> and how big is this lake y'all are near? Or is it on y'all's land or just near where you can use it or what? Yeah, uh, we're we're right in front of it. It's, uh, I would say, roughly about a mile long and a half mile across. All right. That seems like a hard thing to come back from. Yeah, I mean, because, yeah, like, it's one of those things that seems great until they run out of other things to eat and start eating each other. It's 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 a mess. Do you all have any other fishing resources, though? Like you mentioned a creek, I think. Yes, we can we can hike through the woods about two miles where there are trout, grayling, and salmon, you know, during the salmon runs. The issue here, of course, is walking through the woods is not like walking through the woods in Connecticut yeah. because Mother Nature reclaims the woods so much, so we have to maintain the trail. So we, uh, you know, one year we'll cut back the tall grass and the devil's club, and the next year we'll go through and we'll corduroy the low spots, and the next year we go through with a chainsaw and cut out whatever trees have fallen over the trail. So uh, it's a bit of an effort. My my hope is that we can get it so we can take the ATV all the way over there because I must admit to being a little bit nervous walking at a human pace through two miles of woods with black and brown bears carrying a bag of fish. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. The, the, the cover and getting through the woods is one thing. The idea of a giant brown thing wanting to eat you because you have a bag, a creel full of salmon is another. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, a, a lot of parts of Alaska, that is your primary protein resource is salmon, trout, grayling, etc. And, and a lot of places it's straight up salmon. I've seen the big wheel traps and stuff like that, and it's just not like y'all aren't in that kind of a location. Right. So, at any rate, it's, uh, you know, we're always looking for um, new things to grow and do and make our life uh, easier. You know, we're going to be aging in place, hopefully, uh, someday and trying to get a lot of the heavy projects out of the way. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're learning something every year. So, hopefully, uh, on your next podcast, we'll have uh, a bunch of new different uh, things in our, in our garden. Cool, man. I appreciate y'all being with us today. Real quick before I let you go, um, y'all mentioned chickens, and I think, did you? I don't know if you mentioned any other livestock, but if it's expensive to get food in for people, it's probably expensive to get food in for birds or what have you. Is there anything y'all do to mitigate that at all? Well, like lots of people, we tend to butcher them in the fall. Okay. <laughs> Let them let them live when they can make a living for themselves, and 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 maybe just carry a few over the winter. Cool. Well, guys, I appreciate y'all being. Go ahead. I was just gonna say we we let them free range during the summer, 
And then we've done a cost-benefit analysis of the chickens, ducks, and rabbits to decide which ones get to live through the winter. And usually we let the chickens survive and the others we eat for Thanksgiving and Christmas. And the other thing, too, to remember is that since they're free-raging, they're kind of our guard dogs uh, when bears and moose come around. And boy, do they holler and squawk when one of those is uh, large animals in the yard. So that's uh, that helps us you know, get ready uh, for what, what might be around the corner for us. Very cool. Very cool, man. Well, guys, I appreciate you being with us today. Thanks for coming and hanging out for a while. Thanks, Jack. Really had a, a great time. Appreciate your, your letting us be part of your show. Jack, thank you and Dorothy for having us back. We really enjoy all your work. Goodbye. Well, guys, I really enjoyed that conversation. I hope you did as well. Um, You know, when I put out a call for uh, interviews, I got a tremendous, tremendous uh, number of folks uh, over this this last uh, sequence that were really diverse and uh, some people that are, like, well-known, some people that are just some people living their lives like these folks. And I, I love to bring you both of those. I love to bring you, like, super high-level subject matter experts, but I also just love to bring you people that are living their lives by the things that we teach here, and, 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 and these two certainly are. With that, let's go ahead and remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can always help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you go there, you'll see all the items that I've reviewed and links to go and purchase them, but it doesn't matter what you buy. As long as you start your shopping at tspaz.com, you help us out no matter what you buy. Today's item of the day I brought to you um, for the first time a few months ago. It's a product by Outdoor Edge. and I brought you the first knife from Outdoor Edge, uh, the Outdoor Edge Razor Blaze, like three years ago, and I've been using that knife a lot since then. They came out with a knife that is far more a EDC knife. It has, you know, uh, a, a, it, I was going to say liner lock, but they all have that uh, a carry clip. So for something carrying inside the pocket um, where the razor blades didn't, it was more of a knife you'd carry in a sheath. It's a nice size with a three and a half inch blade. It's very compact. It's a thin design. It feels good in the hand. And the, the thing about the Outdoor Edge products is they use replaceable blades. And they use a steel that's the same steel if you've ever been operated on. Odds are that the surgeon that operated on you used a scalpel uh, with this steel. And it is not a steel that like a custom knife maker is going to use. It's, it's rel As steel goes, it's relatively soft. It only holds an edge for so long, and it's not very expensive. Uh, it's mainly used in knife making and things like liner springs and stuff like that because it's incredibly uh, resistant to corrosion and things like that. However, it is something that you can very easily get razor sharp, and again, it's inexpensive. So for this application, it's the perfect choice. And basically, the way this knife works, when the blade's not in it, it kind of looks like a real small, thin blade, and that's the piece that holds the blade in place. And there's a little button, and you push that button, and you slide the blade in, and it locks in. And when you're ready to replace it, you push the button, pull the blade out, throw it away. The blades cost about a buck a piece. And while I'm not going to put them on a stone and spend a lot of time working on them, I get a lot of use out of a single blade just by running When they start to get a little bit dull, just run them over a, a sharpening steel. And because it's because it's, it's a, a softer steel, real easy to bring back to razor sharp really, really quick. I love this knife. I've, I've worked with some of the other Outdoor Edge products, including, including the Razor Fin, the Razor Bone. They're a larger knife. 
but this is the one that makes sense for EDC. Let me tell you how much I love this. I retired my recommendation for the Gerber EAB after I ordered my first one of these and carried it for a week. And those of you that are long-time listeners know before there was a T-SPAS, I was recommending the Gerber EAB as a great EDC tool. The EAB uses a standard razor knife blade, but it screws in and it folds and it's compact. It goes in your pocket. It's got two big weaknesses. Three. One is the form factor as far as the handle. It's really small, so certain things you might need to put a little more effort into. You're, you, know, you have a little bit more chance of a slip and maybe cutting yourself or breaking a blade or, or something like that. Two, since it's using half of a standard razor blade, it doesn't have much of a length to the edge. So it's, it's good for opening boxes, cutting up cardboard, the kind of thing you'd use a knife like this for, stuff that you don't really want to use your expensive custom knives or even your just good, really good high-quality knives on. Um, good for you know anything a utility knife would work for, but it, it, it carries well. Um, the other thing is the EAB, the clip on the EAB inevitably eventually fails and falls off. And then you end up with a pocket knife instead of a, you know, a liner clip knife. This doesn't have that problem. It's, it's incredibly well built. And while it costs a little more money out of the gate, this is now my EDC always sharp as a razor knife that I don't worry about doing some mean things to it because if you know the blade gets nicked or whatever beyond repair, you just... For a buck, brand new blade. I, I, I can't emphasize how big a deal it is for me to say don't buy the Gerber EAB. I have had dozens of y'all come to events, workshops, whatever, and show me that you're carrying an EAB. That's how long I've been recommending this thing. But when I, when I got my hands on the Razor Lite, I knew I found a better tool. And I think if you give it a shot, you'll really like it. You can find it at T-SPAS. <clears throat> you can always get my announcements for things like this if you're on my email distribution list. Uh, better is to get on the Telegram channel. If you get on my Telegram channel, every time I put out a post on the blog, a new episode, whatever, you get a little quick text message on Telegram. If you decide you don't like it, you unsubscribe. It's that simple, and you won't be bombarded with 20 other people, 30 other people, 300 other people. I think our TSP group on Telegram has well over a thousand people. Um, so you, if you don't want all that chat and you just want info from me, get on the Telegram channel. And I'll tell you why. In this case, I doubt this is going to sell out today. I didn't see any low volumes or whatever. There are times when sales come across and I put out something in the morning and by the time I do this segment on the podcast, it's gone. It's gone. They're sold out. It happens all the time. Uh, so sometimes I find some really good deals. So you want to be on that. You also want to know what's going on. And, it, you know, unlike a lot of social media and all where there's algorithms running, Telegram channel, if I send it and you're using it, you get it. All right. With that, let's go ahead and uh, wrap things up with our song of the day. Um, as I started yesterday and I'm finishing through this week, I'm doing songs that are kind of anti-lockdown, uh, anti-state overreach for COVID songs. Yesterday I did one by, you know, a legend in music, uh, Eric Clapton with a kind of a, an assist from Van Morrison, two legends. Today I'm bringing you a guy that I'm going to bet almost none of you have ever heard of. His freaking YouTube only has like a few hundred followers. And he's not great, but he's good. He's a he's in a legitimate band. 
his name's Tommy Coyle. He's a British-based uh, musician. And it's amazing to me, I, we haven't had a damn American musician with freaking backbone uh, as so far uh, over here to actually speak out against this shit. Um, I think maybe the British, having been more uh, violated in their rights, uh, tend to be a little bit more pissed off about this. But the truth is, all of these musicians that were doing protest songs and stuff like that in the 60s and 70s that are still around, any of them that aren't pissed off and speaking up about what's going on right now, you never meant what you said. Right, so this young guy, Tommy Coyle, he's willing to, to put something out. This song is called Stasi State. And um, the Stasi uh, were the, uh, the East German... Uh, secret police. They were basically the KGB of East Germany before Germany was reunited and the wall came down. And the point of this song, and I think it's completely valid, is a lot of things that we said were so evil about communism in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Even in the 2000s, we hadn't totally lost our mind yet and said, look at what they do to their own people is what your government's doing to you now. And the emergency is nowhere near the emergency they make it out to be, but your rights do not disintegrate because there's an emergency. Your government believes that because it's not about the emergency. It's about your government wanting more power and more control over your life. With that, it's been Jack Spierkill, another edition of the Survival Podcast.
Flying. 